You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Cracking the code on how you can optimize, personalize, and monetize your app marketing and mobile growth efforts. Welcome to Mobile Presence, hosted by Peggy Ann Saltz. Peggy, a top 30 mobile marketing influencer, nine-time author, and content strategist, brings you her pick of tech, trends, guests, and cool stuff to help you drive growth and create deep connections with your customers. Now, prepare to get motivated and activated with our host. Hey, hello, and welcome to Mobile Presence. I'm your host, Peggy Ann Saltz with Mobile Group, where I plan produce and promote content that allows my clients to reach performance goals and scale growth. And of course, growth is what it's all about here. You come in here every week, you're hearing growth hacking tips, you're hearing how to grow your audience, how to grow your app, how to deepen and grow engagement. But you know, sometimes you have to take a big step back and look at the big ideas, the big picture behind growth. And I'm excited because we're even going to turn it on its head. We're going to talk about how growth can come from irrational ideas. I am too excited to continue. We're just going to dive right in. Our guest today, the one, the only, on of advertising, Rory Sutherland, Vice Chairman Ogilvy. Rory, fantastic to have you on the show today. Oh, it's a great pleasure to be here. And I said the dawn. That's one of the things I read. Uh, I've done a lot of research, but of course we go back away too. You're one of my... is, is is that in a mafia sense or an academic? I sense? don't know. There, I was reading an article. This is, I think, from India of all places, saying that you're the dawn. And then there's a picture of you and a picture of Don Draper. So you figure it out. Ah, that kind, the third kind of dawn. Okay, right. I think a new dawn, you know, like a dawn, as in yes, mafia, but also Don Draper. A little play on words. Do you, do you, how do you feel about that? Because of course. You have so many multiple hats, you know, TED speaker, published author. We'll be talking about your book in a moment. The Don, what do you think? Or is it The Godfather? Uh, well, uh, David Ogilvy, at first, I think Ogilvy became known as the uh, University of Advertising. And David Ogilvy slightly pushed back against that. And he always referred to it as the teaching hospital of advertising because he wanted it to be a mixture of learning and practice. Uh, in other words, he thought there was a kind of halfway house between um, pure theory and, um, uh, and, and, and practice. And Ogilvy and Fairness is, is an agency culture. Um, I think it's got that balance mostly right, at least for most of my time there. And one of the things, in terms of the other kind of Don, um, 
Uh, one of the things I occasionally say in my more candid moments is that I would quite like to get the marketing services agency or the ad agency slightly back to a little more draperism, mm -hmm. which is that it was not purely a kind of comms agency. One of the things you'll notice is some of Don Draper's best ideas, calling the round thing in the middle of a slide projector a carousel, for example, yeah. mm -hmm. um, suggesting where Heineken should be sold. Uh, I think there's a great quote in one episode of Mad Men where he says, I'll tell you what's a big idea, Nine ninety-five, <laughs> And agencies of various kinds were repositories of really, really interesting psychological thinking. And what happened, I think, is that they got scared. Um, patently, they made money on commission. So they weren't directly paid. It wasn't a source of profit uh, producing those kind of ideas or researching them. What I think happened is that books like The Hidden Persuaders, films like The Manchurian Candidate, there was a long period of complete paranoia in the United States about brainwashing and underhand manipulation of the unconscious. Mm. And I think an unfortunate thing happened in the 1950s, perhaps even the early 60s, many agencies might have had an agency psychologist. And for some reason, all of that disappeared. And essentially, what I think they thought is actually, we don't make any money out of this, and the reputational risk is very high. So we'll simply concentrate on the business of what one ad man called, uh, you know, uh, essentially, you know, pure rational persuasion in the clear light of day. And um, I always thought that was, in a sense, a cowardly act. It's patently obvious that advertising works at an unconscious level. That isn't to say that subliminal advertising necessarily works, but patently uh, advertising works not only by direct messaging, but also by inference. And... Therefore, to concentrate entirely, if you like, on the uh, what you might call the overt contents of a message without investigating what other forms of persuasion there are other than direct appeal to reason uh, strikes me as a complete failing. I mean, you're essentially devaluing the power of what we can do by simply suggesting that the only possible way in which advertising works is through placing a rational argument for something in the public space. I mean, at a very simple level, okay, if you take cigarette advertising before it was banned, it didn't say anything, okay? I mean, you weren't allowed to say it's a really cool, relaxing smoke or, you know, it helps you on long drives by not getting angry. No one was allowed to put any positive benefits for nicotine. Nonetheless, I think it's fair to say that the presence of tobacco advertising normalized smoking. Because if something is widely advertised, it is made to seem less weird as a result. Now, okay, that was a finding that was used to ban tobacco advertising. I'd equally say that you can use exactly that same insight for positive things. If you have a lot of advertising for electric cars, for example, or if solar panels are sold through mainstream retailers like Walmart, <laughs> Yes. Okay. The practice of installing a solar panel will come to seem a lot weir less weird. It will become less mainstream. And when the financial cost of a solar panel stops falling, the emotional cost of installing one, which is risk of ridicule, whatever it may be, can continue to fall.
you're talking about exactly that, you know, blending in behavioral science back into um, advertising in a sense. And that's exactly what you're what you're talking about in your book, but also your mission throughout your career has been to bring the two together. Yes, absolutely. And I think marketing in general, never mind marketing services, marketing in general has lost in stature and influence through not really having a pet science. Mm-hmm. Uh, from which it can draw inspiration, but also it's completely failed to develop any kind of scientific vocabulary. And a brilliantly clever colleague of mine, a very, very good copywriter, called Alistair Graham, he always said of marketing language, that he said the vocabulary of marketing is little like the vocabulary of astrology, which is it's absolutely fine when you're talking to a fellow believer. You know, if you and I were both keen astrologers, we'd go, oh, yes, my daughter, she was born on the cusp. And you'd sigh and go, mm, typical, you see. Now, <laughs> the problem is to anybody who isn't an astrologer, we both sound completely mad. <laughs> and the analogy I used is that, say, you know, talking about something like brand iconography is perfectly sane conversation if you're two marketers. The second you talk to a finance director, uh, you, broadly speaking, sound insane. And, uh, you know, I said, you know, saying going to a finance director and talking about brand iconography is like going to the head of thoracic surgery at, uh, you know, a large hospital and saying, let us all trust to the healing power of the crystal. Okay, it doesn't reference any recognizable scientific body of work. And so what I think has often happened is that the very best advertising practitioners uh, including the fictional ones like Don Draper, have always been instinctively very, very good behavioral scientists. I think any good creative person has an innate understanding of how persuasion works, which they've developed through trial and error or imitation or whatever. Mm-hmm. But in defending their ideas, and interestingly, of necessity, many of those ideas are going to be counterintuitive. In defending the seeming irrationality of their approach, they've never had a a credible vocabulary that they can use to explain what they're doing. Now, I'll give you a very simple example of this. Um, I think um, I was talking to Russ Roberts a couple of weeks ago on EconTour. He mentioned another American example, which is, I think, Smuckers with a name that's terrible, we have to make good Jack. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, another one would be Avis, we're number two, so we try harder. In the UK, we had uh, a brand of lager called Stella Artois, which was launched as reassuringly expensive. <sighs> now, quite a lot of great advertising end lines, good things come to those who wait for Guinness, which is an incredibly slow pint to pour. Okay, Quite a lot of those things practice the magic of turning a weakness into a strength. And it's a kind of rhetorical technique where you acknowledge a weakness, flip the frame of reference, and turn it into a benefit. Okay? And by changing what the human focus is on, or changing the frame of reference, you can practice what I call alchemy in the book, which is uh, literally um, uh, turning lead into gold. Now, interestingly, Robert Cialdini, who's a very good behavioral scientist at um, at the University of Arizona, He researched this and found that, indeed, the admission of weakness increases persuasive power. Now, if you go to someone without that research and you say, my intended strapline is we're number two, so we try harder, or um, good things come to those who wait, or reassuringly expensive, 
the reaction of a conventionally rational person who has to defend that line to the board is, why are we spending our money on saying, rem saying uh, re two. reminding people of a negative? Yes. You see? And so, um, and indeed, actually, I mean, they, they looked for many other things to say when they were coming up with that Avis line, and they said that was the only really convincing story they could tell. Now, what's fascinating is Avis is number two in rental cars, in rental cars, is an ad for Hertz, taken at face value, okay? Once you add those four words underneath, so we try harder. In other words, you turn yes. the focus away from we have fewer outlets, lower choice of cars, less chance that your chosen model's available, to the attitude of the staff you deal with. By changing the focus of attention, by changing the context, what you do is you literally turn a weakness into a strength. And that's a practice. My point is that you can't perform alchemy in physics, and you can't perform it in chemistry, but you can in psychology. You can indeed. And you have in your book, and we do have to go to break right now, Rory. So I'm going to stop you right there. But listeners, as you can see, an exciting show. And we're going to come back and talk about alchemy, the surprising power of ideas that don't make sense. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Mobile Presence will be back after we connect you to our sponsors. It passes before it's noticed. A slight rising of the eyebrows, a widening of the eyes. It may be accompanied by an almost imperceptible inhalation. The heart adds a beat like a quiet exclamation point on the experience. Within a tenth of a second, the reaction has passed, but not without leaving its mark. Someone found what they're looking for. Does your website deliver impulses to act? It can. Intended Consequences is the podcast for digital marketers who see their job as changing hearts and minds. If you're frustrated, bored, or in a rut, it's time to spread your wings with me, Brian Massey, and my guests. Find out how successful, curious, creative, and data-driven marketers are making a difference on purpose. Visit IntendedPodcast.com or find us where you get your podcasts. Intended Consequences. Marketing on Purpose. You are now tuned in to the world's largest online radio podcast network for internet marketers looking to dominate the B2B marketplace. WebmasterRadio.fm WebmasterRadio.fm is home to some of the most respected authorities in all aspects of internet marketing, from SEO to affiliate marketing to social media, e-commerce, mobile marketing, and so much more. Our hosts travel to all stretches of the world and speak to the impact players that are affecting our industry. On air, on demand, and available on every mobile device that you can imagine. This is WebmasterRadio.fm. WebmasterRadio.fm. We're everywhere. Miami may be the sun and fun capital of the world, but it's also home to the largest literary festival in the U.S. Don't miss the Miami Book Fair, a week-long festival featuring more than 600 authors from all over the world with readings, signings, and panels capped off by a three-day street fair. Find books in English, Spanish, and Creole for every interest and every age, from biographies and novels to poetry and comics. 
This year, come meet poets Richard Blanco, Reginald Dwayne Betts, and Joy Harjo, award-winning novelists T.C. Boyle, Susan Choi, Edwidge Denticott, Taya Obrecht, Julie Orancher, Leonard Pitts, and Karen Russell, plus authors exploring issues of the day such as Eve Ensler, Alex Kutlowitz, Danny Shapiro, Daryl Pickney, Ambassador Samantha Power, George Wilt, and hundreds more. Take the little ones to Children's Alley for hands-on activities, characters, and storytelling. Enjoy music, food, and fun for the whole family right on the downtown Miami-Dade College campus, November 17th to the 24th. For details, schedules, and tickets, visit MiamiBookFair.com. Supercharging your mobile growth efforts. Welcome back to Mobile Presence on WebmasterRadio.fm. Here is your host, Peggy Ann Saltz. And we're back to Mobile Presence. We have Rory Sutherland, Vice Chairman Ogilvy UK, and we're talking about your new book, Rory. So um, first of all, you know, it's uh, very new. When did it come out? I believe in uh, May, it, June? It, it, it came out in May or June. It may have had a slightly different launch date in the United States. It okay. certainly has a different title in the United States. Oh, it's called, well, it's it called? Uh, it's called Alchemy in both countries. In the UK, it's called The Surprising Power of Ideas That Don't Make Sense. If you're looking for the US hardback edition, uh, it's called The Dark Art and Curious Science of Creating Magic in Brands, Business, and Life. Oh, that's a little bit cooler, Rory, actually. You prefer the, you prefer the American title, in yeah, which I like case the they're... dark, you know, the dark, the dark sounds mystical and magical. And in a well, way it is, I mean... Well, no, I mean, actually, the dark art thing was clever in the same way that when David Ogilvy called the book um, Confessions of an Advertising Man, uh, <laughs> it aroused a kind of curiosity that uh, a bolder title would never have done. And so the slight implication of skullduggery and mischief probably helped sell books, to be honest. So we're talking about your book. I mean, I can imagine where you got some of the inspiration because you are you are there. You've been in the industry, as I said, you know, the the dawn, whatever you want to call it, you know, a veteran. Um, what is the, 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 the takeaway here? It seems to go through a number of, lo- of ways looking at what uh, brands and companies have done that seems irrational, but yet made extremely successful. And maybe there is a pattern there. Maybe there are some rules there that you want to share. So... Um, Maybe just, first of all, the inspiration. Where did it come from? Well, the impetus for writing it was rather strange, in fact, which was uh, I was ill with flu for about a week. Um, And this would have been about 15 years ago, maybe 12 years ago. Um, And being relatively bored, I just took to reading quite a few fairly popular books about economics. And it struck me that this was a fascinating theory that bore almost no relation to reality. In fact, the very reason it was fascinating, neat and elegant was precisely because it had abandoned consideration of reality in order to achieve its mathematical elegance. And um, uh, what I suddenly realized is that the attitude of mainstream economics, I, I, I exclude Austrian economics, I exclude classical economics from this. I think people like Adam Smith were genuinely as interested in how people behaved as they were in creating some sort of weird idealized mathematical model. The Austrian school patently believed that economics should be a subordinate branch of psychology, not a strange kind of perverted love child of mathematics and physics. And... Um, So what I noticed, of course, is that once you assume that economics is true, in other words, that people have uh, stable preferences, they have perfect information, 
perfect knowledge of the utility they'll derive from any purchase and complete trust in the person they're buying it from, all of which are assumptions of mainstream economic models. You've created an idealized world where marketing wouldn't need to exist. Mm -hmm. And it suddenly struck me that a large part of the hostility to advertising was because if your frame of reference for how business and, and economies exist is derived from that mainstream economic thought, then you're going to be, you're going to see advertising essentially as a necessary evil or as a, a necessary cost that has to be minimized, not as a source of value creation. Uh, the Austrians completely disagreed. They thought that, and you can see that in the works, works of Peter Drucker, by the way. Drucker's father was best friends with the Austrian economist Schumpeter. Uh, Drucker was very familiar with him. And they believed that marketing was as much a source of value creation as manufacturing was. Because in order to create value, the only place you created it was in the mind of the prospective buyer. And that was as much an exercise in how you presented the thing and described it and what you compared it to as it was an exercise in manufacturing the thing in the first place. So you're going into a lot of the value here of, of going against the tide, you know, being irrational. You've got well, a lot well, of examples, you know, fast food outlets that increase sales by putting the price up. You know, what wouldn't seem logical is the best way to succeed, it seems here. Well, in psychology, this is the vital thing, that if you have a, a model of the world that's based on Newtonian physics, um, if you think of the second law of thermodynamics, you know, energy cannot be created or destroyed. The economic equivalent of that is Milton Friedman's, there's no such thing as a free lunch. In other words, you're constrained by the idea that the only way you can actually increase value in any market or service is either by making the product materially better or by reducing the price. And therefore, you've immediately failed to even consider the creation of magic because you have a model within which magic cannot exist. Now, my contention is there are lots and lots of things where you can fundamentally change people's estimation of something, people's propensity to do something, not by changing the thing itself mm -hmm. or by changing its price, but by changing the, um, the frame of reference. Because we don't, there is no single objective view of the world that's presented to human consciousness. You know, we don't have the processing power, basically. And evolution would hardly want us to possess such a thing anyway. You know, we have to have discretionary attention uh, to survive as an animal. So I'll give you an example of very, very simple draperism, okay? Right. Which is, in the UK, we have a thing called a TV license, and it's mandatory, and it covers the BBC programming on radio and television and the website and so forth. Um, for a long time, there was no tradition of paying for television at all. It was either advertiser-funded, pure and simple, or it was covered by the license fee. And then Sky comes along, and you can actually pay for a reasonably modest amount of money, £17 a month, you would get sort of 150 or 200 extra channels of discovery. Uh, you know the ones, History Channel, yep, yep. Lifetime. Uh, uh, in fact, we even have PBS over here as well now. So I was trying to persuade my father that it was £17 a month, given that he was retired and had a lot of spare time to spend 17 pounds on these extra channels. And um, I even offered to pay for him, to be honest. I wasn't that stingy. And he said, no, 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 it's too much money. 
And I tried a very simple Don Draper trick. It's one of the oldest sort of reframing tricks in the marketer's armory. I just said, well, it's not 17 pounds a month. Think of it as 60 pence a day. <laughs> he said, they said, well, what difference does that make? And I said, well, you spend two pounds a day on newspapers. He's an avid newspaper. I said, if you spend two pounds a day on newspapers, it's not that crazy to spend another 60p to get another 200 channels of factual television. And he said, I see what you mean. Uh, I never thought of it like that before. And he suddenly, actually, he paid for it himself willingly and has become a kind of weird sky advocate amongst his elderly friends. And the point is that even whether something is cheap or expensive, which in mainstream economic thought is, a, you know, is something that is in price is something which is entirely the pain of paying is entirely proportionate to what the cost is. And what that reveals is it isn't whether something's expensive or cheap depends on what you're comparing it to. And that's where the alchemy comes and in. And that's where the alchemy comes in, very simply. So if you want to improve the world, broadly speaking, you can improve the product. You can reduce the price by more efficient manufacturing. But there is also a third course of action, which is being completely left off the problem solvers, left out of the problem solvers toolkit, which is to change something between objective reality and perception. And essentially... The assumption of economics is that reality maps onto behavior. Change reality, change behavior. Don't change reality, behavior stays the same. Okay. Right. Now, the mapping is absolutely, enormously, insanely messy on that. It, uh, this, is a this is not science. This is a kind of um, a, a, a description of how roughly the process works, which is there is the object, our perception of the object, which is determined by context, the meaning we then attach to that, the emotion generated by the meaning, and the behavior generated by the And so there are a whole series of steps where changes in any one of those intermediate steps can lead to a change in behavior while the objective reality has been left the same. Mm -hmm. So the task of the alchemist, okay, maybe you can't turn lead into gold, but there are lots and lots of ways in which you could potentially make lead just as valuable as gold if people somehow found lead very desirable. And that's, of course, where the brilliance comes in and also what you have in your book. But we do have to go to break a final time, Rory. So listeners, don't go away. We'll be right back. Mobile Presence will be back after we connect you to our sponsors. Do you look at the task of ranking your site at the top of the search engines like you would climbing the top of Mount Everest? It doesn't have to be. TopSEOs.com knows how hard that climb can be, and they can make top ranking a reality. Top SEOs send you to only the right search vendors and agencies that they know will work for you. Since 2002, TopSEOs.com has reviewed and researched the best search engine marketing agencies and solutions providers. Don't risk the cost of falling off the proverbial peak of search rankings. Let Top SEOs give you peace of mind. TopSEOs.com, the independent authority on search vendors. Ready to do a podcast for your business? Make that podcast elevate to enterprise level. Let WebmasterRadio.fm expedite and execute your podcast to build your brand and broaden your customer base. WebmasterRadio.fm has worked with the world's biggest tech brands, Google, Yahoo, and Bing, 
and have worked with fast-growing brands like ShipStation and GoDaddy. Now it's your turn. Contact brasco at wmr.fm and rush your enterprise-level podcast into production at a very reasonable rate. Email brasco at wmr.fm. Are you looking for the best in WordPress speed, security, and scalability? WP Engine is a digital experience platform for WordPress, powering digital experiences for large brands around the world. With easy-to-use site management tools and powerful do-it-your-way development features, WP Engine gives you the flexibility to build it your way. Improve your SEO and conversion rates with a faster site on WP Engine. Learn more on WPEngine.com. Supercharging your mobile growth efforts. Welcome back to Mobile Presence on WebmasterRadio.fm. Here is your host, Peggy Ann Saltz. And we're back to Mobile Presence. Of course, I'm Peggy Ann Saltz, your host, and we have Rory Sutherland. And glad to have you today, Rory. And talking about your book, everyone should go out there and check it out. In fact, I've looked around and I've seen it has been called uh, a breakthrough book. And one of the 16 great books for anyone who wants to get ahead in life. And that's probably just a few of the accolades for your book. So you're talking about idea alchemy. You're talking about how you can turn, uh, why the best ideas don't make rational sense. So how can our listeners, they're listening in, they're saying, yes, I want to do the magic. I want to be a brand magician. What are some of the points they need to know or something you're going to leave them with? The essential thought which we need to get across is that nearly everything that communicates, in other words, nearly everything that arouses emotion, has some component to it which is not conventionally logical. Mm-hmm. And um, at a very simple level, I, I, I talk about the work of an extraordinary guy, a psychophysicist called Mark Changizi in the book. And he asked a question which fascinated me, which is, why doesn't water taste of anything? And his evolutionary explanation is very simple, which is our taste buds are calibrated not to notice the taste of water, because what we need to do is to notice anything in water that isn't water. For most of our evolutionary history, the only liquid we would have drunk would be water. Beer was probably, what, 5,000 years ago, and so on. And so the ability to be highly attuned to anything in water that wasn't water, like the stench of a decomposing sheep upstream, was vital to our survival. And in the same way, ordinary behavior doesn't really arouse our attention. Something conventionally logical and sensible might be very worthy in an economic sense, but it doesn't Mm -hmm. get us excited. An example I give, I think, in the book is they spent half a billion pounds renovating one of London's major stations. And the thing that stuck in everybody's mind was not the, the fantastic brickwork or the glorious work they'd done in renovating the undercroft. It was a trivial little seemingly nonsensical fact that the station had Europe's longest champagne bar. (laughs) It's a bit like, actually, I can give a beautiful American translation of that, which is is the fact that, if I'm right, Grand Central Station has an oyster bar in the middle. Is that right? Oh, yeah, you're asking me. I'm I'm fairly sure. I'm based in Europe, so I'm going to pass on that one. (laughs) But it's a kind of weird eccentricity which somehow captures a disproportionate amount of human attention precisely because it's weird. Okay. And so whereas, for example, intelligence, logic, efficiency, and common sense may 
translate into perfect effectiveness in fields of business such as logistics, for example. In marketing, in order to be noticeable, in order to actually stand out, you've got to do something that isn't water. Okay. And that will almost certainly slightly annoy your finance director. Um, it will involve, I mean, a, a nice American example would be the Doubletree Hotel chain, which when you check in has a little oven underneath the check-in desk and they hand you a bag of warm, fresh cookies when you check in. And, okay, there's no requirement, that no procurement officer is demanding cookies from a hotel on check-in. The very fact that it's kind of gratuitously generous and unnecessary, the very fact that it's, it's what you might call um, an act of patently, a sort of act of discretionary generosity, is what gives it meaning. And I would argue that in some parts of business, the biggest source of competitive advantage that a company can enjoy is actually the ability to do things that a finance director doesn't like. <laughs> and so if you have too strong a kind of efficiency mindset in any organization, it becomes water. And people don't notice it, they don't care about it, it loses salience. And therefore, a kind of ability to override your, your more logical colleagues um, needs to be one of the privileges accorded to a marketer. And there is, of course, a spectacular example of success in that, uh, which is Steve Jobs, in a sense. Yeah. Which is, he asked a different question. Everybody else was trying to improve telephones, let's say, mobile telephones, objectively. And they, they asked the question, what can this phone do? And the measure of what the phone could do was the entirely rational one of its clock speed, its RAM, its memory capacity, and so forth. And Jobs comes along, and instead of looking at the objective reality, he shunts right the way over to perception and asks the question, doesn't matter that much what the phone can do. In fact, objectively, the first iPhone was really pretty poor on quite a few dimensions. The battery barely lasted a single day. When the first iPhone came out, I was with a bunch of people from Nokia who were ridiculing it for that reason. You can't buy a phone that you know, is dead by 11 o'clock in the evening. And yet, what Jobs had done is he'd asked a different question, which is not what can the phone do, but what does it feel like while you're doing it? Mm. And it was one much closer to what people care about, even if it involved a lot of bizarre, seemingly trivial things like interface design. Um, fundamentally, no one cared what another more powerful phone could do if doing it was half as enjoyable. Uber, Uber I also argue in the book, is a psychological innovation. The map is a work of genius because it's not about how long are you waiting for a cab. It's what does your wait feel like. And when yeah. you can watch a little, little car approaching on the map, your feelings of frustration, anxiety, and powerlessness are reduced by about 90%. Even if your wait time in objective seconds in SI units isn't reduced at all. Well, there's lots of examples of how letting go of logic and embracing the irrational is the key to being brilliant. And I could talk about it with you, Rory, for another show. So we'll just bring you back. That's what we'll do. We'll make it easy on ourselves. We do have to stop now. We will bring you back. But in the meantime, our listeners are probably saying, okay, I want to know about the book. We'll have that in the show notes, where to get it, where to order it. How can they keep up with you, Rory? You're doing a lot out there. You still have TED Talks, I'm sure. Other things you're doing, all your projects. What's the best way? Um, my, I suppose my sort of font in terms of information will be my Twitter handle, 
okay. uh, which is very simple, at Rory Sutherland, all one word, R-O-R-Y, then Sutherland as in Kiefer. Um, that's pretty much where the resemblance ends, by the way. <laughs> but um, but, but R-O-R-Y and then Sutherland as in Kiefer, uh, and you'll find me on Twitter, and other materials tend to be tweeted out. Um, there's also a new publication, I understand, called Spectator USA, um, which is the American arm of the British Spectator Weekly magazine. And um, so since I write for the British uh, version, uh, fortnightly, I probably appear in that as well. Oh, I wasn't aware of that one. I do read up on Twitter. I'm, I follow you on Twitter. I watch some other projects of yours. I'll check in there. Absolutely. And we will have you back. That is my promise. And listeners... Of course, if you want to keep up with me throughout the week or find out more about how you can be a guest or sponsor on Mobile Presence, you can email me, Peggy, at MobileGroove. MobileGroove.com is also where you can find my portfolio of content marketing and app marketing services. And don't forget to check out this and all early episodes of our show by going to webmasterradio.fm or you can find our shows on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, Spotify, and iHeartRadio simply by searching Mobile Presence. So until next time, friends, remember... Every minute is mobile, so make every minute count. We'll see you soon. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of WebmasterRadio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.